The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. I want to ask you to turn to um, the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 23. Uh, for, for some time now, um, we have been in preparation for the Easter season, and we have been um, going through these seven words, or, or perhaps... Um, more accurately, seven sayings of Jesus, these things that, that Christ said. So if it's uh, your first time with us or, or if you've been with us and maybe you didn't catch all that, that's a, a recap. Um, we're in Luke chapter 23. We'll begin in verse 44. Um, last week was... was uh, Minister to me uh, particularly as Pastor Scott, who is absent today, um, preached on how it is finished, uh, the finished work of Christ accomplished for us on the cross um, has implications for us that are deep, and today we will actually um, build on that somewhat. In Luke chapter 23, verse 44, begins this way. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This is, of course, our our word for the day. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Let's pray. Lord, when we approach your word, we approach a dangerous time. A time where we attempted to give way to distraction. A time when You speak because we know, God, that whenever the Bible speaks, you speak. So woe to us if we neglect this gift. This is a dangerous time, Lord, and I pray that we would not harden our hearts, but perhaps you would allow us the grace to see you in a new light today in your word. I pray that for the one in this room, Lord, who does not know you, that today they would find you to be altogether glorious and that they would surrender to you. I ask these things, Lord, as a beggar. In the name of Jesus, amen.
And when we, when we first approach this passage, it, uh, one of the first things that perhaps sticks out to us is this darkness, this darkness that we see in, in, um, in the first couple of verses. Now, it was about the sixth hour, which means noon, um, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Um, my, my, my translation of the Bible here, the ESV, says there was darkness. Um, I think it's, it's very interesting. A very literal translation of this would be, and darkness came. Uh, Luke uses the word that he, that he uh, loves to use all throughout his, his uh, account here when he says, and it came to pass. And he says here, and darkness came. And I, I think of myself sitting perhaps in a theater, uh, a movie theater, or maybe uh, watching some theatrical production. And, and maybe if uh, you, you notice sometimes that if you're watching a movie or if you're watching a play, sometimes when the mood changes, uh, the music changes. Sometimes you can know if, if you're watching like a movie that's really got you on the edge of your seat, uh, right when the music starts to turn really like ominous, you're like, oh no, something bad's going to happen. Something is about to happen. You know, I'm just, I'm scared now. It's right around the corner. It's getting ready to jump out at me or, or whatever the case may be. And then sometimes maybe if you're in a play, in a theater, as the scene changes or as the mood changes, the lighting changes uh, perhaps. And that's kind of what uh, I think uh, may be at least uh, symbolic here. Uh, you, you think about what is actually happening. A very dark thing is taking place. These people who just a few days ago as Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem, shouted the words that we just sang, Hosanna, Hosanna. Perhaps for many of them only later to be the same people, fickle and, and uh, subject to the changing winds of popular opinion, shouted, Crucify Him. And now we see them thinking perhaps that they are doing a good thing, that they are taking a, uh, a condemned criminal up on top of a hill to kill him thinking that they are carrying out the will of the state and perhaps even the will of God. And darkness came. See, darkness in their culture, in the Greek culture and in the Jewish culture, it had always been um, associated with the death of good men. This idea, this notion of darkness. So can you imagine shouting, crucify him, crucify him with this bold confidence in their heart and they walk up the hill and darkness came. I can't help but wonder if many of their attitudes began to change, thinking, oh no, something here is amiss. What, a, what, what of this darkness? It says, it's not simply as if, as if uh, perhaps it became cloudy. I don't know what means God used, but it says that the sun's light failed. As R. Kent Hughes wrote, 33 years earlier, there had been a dazzling light in the night when Jesus was born. Now there was darkness at noontide when he died. It's a dark, dark reality taking place here between noon and 3 o'clock, between the 6th and the ninth hour, and darkness came. Perhaps much can be said of this. I don't want to make too much of the darkness and try to draw all these kind of contrived uh, illustrations here about the darkness. But what we do know is that darkness uh, was, was the, the darkness that came over the land as Jesus was being crucified simply mirrored the reality of what was going on. A very, very dark thing 
was unfolding. I think it's appropriate, I think it is appropriate to, to view it this way. This darkness, in, in this darkness, in this moment of darkness, the one who knew no sin was in that moment taking on the sin of the world. It doesn't get darker than that. In a moment of separation from the Father, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So do you see that in this darkness, the spotless Lamb of God was being credited with all of the sins that you have committed and that I have committed? I don't know about you, but sometimes when I think about my own sinfulness and my own wickedness, you feel this, you feel this weight, perhaps even a darkness, the weight that, that I can't on my own bear this sin. I can't on my own deal with this. I mean, can, can you imagine just, just thinking of your own sin? Can you imagine being the person who was considered that they perhaps brought you up front here and we, and we treated you as if you had done the sins that have been committed over the lifetime of everyone just in this room. That is what is happening to Jesus. He is being considered by the Father as though he had done the sins that we all have committed. It is a dark, dark thing because he was sinless. He was sinless. Can you imagine the loneliness? In this darkness, Mark 15 tells us that the Son was separated from the Father. We heard the word a couple of weeks ago, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Father turned away in holiness because God in His holiness, the Father is unable to look on sin that His Son had become, indeed, this was a dark moment. But why? Why did he endure such suffering? Could not he have just come and said, by, by my word, everything is now right? Why did God do it? And I would suggest that verse 45 begins the explanation of that. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. The Gospel of Matthew makes this a little more explicit when he says that the temple was torn from top to bottom, illustrating God's initiative in making a way between himself and sinful man. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. The tearing of this curtain shows God's intention to make good on his promises. We see here uh, that, that he is continuing this grand purpose He sent a Savior. We rejected Him. But even in our faithlessness, He shows Himself to be faithful in in, in showing that He will continue to dwell among His people. We see this as He walks in the garden in the cool of the day. If you notice when it says that God came walking in the darkness in the cool of the day, that verse comes right after the fall, right after sin had entered the world. And God still desires to dwell among His people walking in the garden in the cool of the day. We see it in the tabernacle, this provision, these Israelites having to carry this thing around for their entire journey through the the wilderness and through much of their history. God has set up this provision that they can have this temple where they can come and meet with him. He wants to still dwell with his people, though they are unholy. 
We see it in the temple. Construct this temple. And here, the, the curtain of the temple that separated uh, the, the outer courts from the holy of holies. This curtain was torn in two. It's the only one person, as you have no doubt heard over the past few weeks, only one person could go to the other side of that curtain. And it only happened one time a year when the high priest went in to make atonement for the sins of the people. And now the curtain is torn, symbolizing that there is access for all who will come. We see it in the sun, this access that, that, that God desires to, to give to his people. You think about it. God took on flesh for the, for the sole purpose of dwelling among his people. The very name Emmanuel means God with us. We see it in the Holy Spirit now when, when Jesus said, I will leave you a, a comforter, I will leave you a counselor, and he will remind you of everything that I have said. God wants to dwell with his people. He wants to make a way. He wants to make access. And we see this also in the restoration that one day God's glory will cover the dry lands as the water covers the sea. Everything will be made right. There will be no temple. There will be no sun. Because we have access. And the glory of God is our light. Will be one day. God wants to dwell with his people. Indeed, we, what we see here in this dark moment is the one perfect priest making one sacrifice that turns away the wrath of God toward all who will believe. Uh, never again would a priest have to sacrifice because as we heard last week, it is finished. I want to draw your attention to a couple of passages. They will be on the screen. You, you can uh, turn there if you'd like, but, uh, but perhaps um, you could just look on, on the screen. In Hebrews chapter 9, we understand just the significance of what is happening here on the cross. Hebrews 9 verse 11 says this, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, when through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of his creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And then in the the next chapter, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11 as well, and every priest stands daily at his service. Why does he stand And why does he stand daily? Because his work is never finished. Because the blood of bulls and goats can never take away the sin. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Every other priest makes multiple sacrifices Daily, Jesus makes one himself. Every other priest stands because his work is never finished. Jesus sat down at the right hand of God because it is finished. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This is a beautiful, glorious 
truth. We see this, that the priest in the temple will no longer have to perform his service because Jesus has once for all taken care of it. And we perhaps in the back of our minds, the song begins to play till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And even in a day when denominations are petitioning the authors of that song to remove the words, perhaps for their own denominational hymnal, they don't want to say that the wrath of God has been satisfied because we don't serve a wrathful God. Oh, yes, we do. But we also serve a God who is making provision to take care of his own wrath so that you don't have to in an eternity separated from him. Christ chose to endure the suffering in order to show himself good and loving, just and the justifier. All of what we consider God's wrongs, perhaps in our sinful, broken mind, we, we consider all the things, why, if, if God is good, why do all these things happen? Why, God is way up there, and he's, he, he's it's like, if he were only down here, he would fix everything. And, and why is God just seeming so aloof? Dorothy Sayers said, for whatever reason, God chose to make people as they are, limited and suffering, subject to sorrows and death. He had the honesty and courage to take his own medicine because he took on flesh. He lived as we did. And he died a gruesome death. Whatever game he is playing with his creation, Sayers goes on to say, he has kept his own rules and he has played fair. He can exact nothing from us that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole human experience from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace and thought it all worthwhile. Why? so that he might bring back a remnant for himself, so that he might save you. In this hour, Jesus endured the suffering, fully man and fully conscious. Uh, Mark 15 tells us that he was offered this kind of narcotic drink, a a wine mixed with with myrrh, uh, to to perhaps ease ease his pain. This was customary for the time. He was determined to bear the full weight, and as such... He refused the drink because he was determined to bear the wrath, to drink the cup of wrath meant for you and meant for me to the dregs. He did not want the easy way out. He did not choose the easy way out. He did it in order to be the just God and the justifier. Romans 3, 23 through 26 elaborates on this. Romans 3.23, of course, perhaps uh, is, a, is a passage that you have memorized. I encourage you to memorize Scripture. I encourage you to hide God's Word in your heart. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, in other words, a substitute, sacrifice, by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness 
because in his divine forbearance, he passed over the former sins, and here it comes. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, there seems to be, at least from our vantage point, a great moral problem that God faces. If he is a good God, how can he let sin stand? And if he is a just God, how can he ever forgive it? And I was told a, a story one time. Uh, perhaps I've, I've shared this with you before. I don't know. Um, a, a pastor was preaching a passage in Romans. And, um, and at the end, this lady came up to him. Maybe I've shared this before. I don't know. I'm going to share it again because I, I like it. This lady came up to him and said, Pastor, I really have always struggled with that particular passage, the one that says, um, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. I've just, I've just always struggled with that, how God could be that way. And the pastor said, oh, I've struggled with that passage too. I don't understand it. And the lady said, yeah, how could God ever hate Esau? And the pastor looked at her and said, well, I'm just trying to figure out how God could ever love Jacob. You see, we are totally without cause to be in his presence. That God loves us is equally mind-boggling. The reason, or perhaps the, uh, instead the, um, the answer to the problem, how can God be good and how can he also be holy? The answer is that he satisfies both problems by becoming the sacrifice that he himself requires. You think about it, you think about the law in the Old Testament. If you ever read through the law, I encourage you, that's a good spiritual exercise. It, read through the book of Exodus. Um, I heard one, one guy say uh, uh, recently, actually, read through Exodus, it'll take you about three hours. That's the time that you would, might spend watching uh, uh, TV this afternoon or watching a, a movie. Take, um, watch, uh, re- read through Exodus. Read through the law sometime. And you'll see there is absolutely no way that the people could ever do everything that God demanded of them. So what's the solution? The solution is God comes in and does it for them. God comes in and satisfies the law in the man Jesus Christ. And he says, if you will repent and believe, you can be credited with the righteousness of Jesus as he is credited with your sin. That is a beautiful, beautiful, glorious truth. And now we get to our word. This final word that Jesus speaks that reveals something about his nature that we should not miss. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He says in verse 46 of Jesus calling out with a loud voice. Typically, I would imagine that if someone is in the throes of death, about to draw their last breath while suffocating on a cross that it would not be typical that they would call out with a loud voice. But Jesus, demonstrating that he was in control up until the very last minute, cried out with a loud voice. He ended his own life on his terms. There is a true sense in which Jesus was killed. He can sit around for hours debating who killed Jesus. Did the Romans? They crucified him. Did the Jews? They're the ones who handed him over. Did God kill Jesus or did Jesus give up his own life? sense in which all of those are true, but, but the main focus of this passage is, that, uh, is the reality that Jesus would not die until he himself willed it, showing himself to be 
very God of very God, showing himself to be totally divine and in control until the final moment. He lived his life on his terms, and he ended his life on his terms. By this, we know that Jesus was in total control, fully God. Haven't we seen Jesus, by the way, other times that a mere man should have been killed? It says in in, in Luke, also in Luke chapter 4, when they heard these things in all the synagogue, that they were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him off the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Totally in control. Because his time had not yet come. But now, in Luke 23, it has See, this is not a man who merely gets killed. As Pastor Scott drew attention to last week, this is not a mere man who merely gets killed. This is a perfect Savior who always chooses the will of the Father, even concerning the time and the nature of his own death. The more we read of the Gospels, the more we come to understand that Jesus chose his death. Had Jesus died at the bottom of that cliff, there would be something missing. There'd be something amiss. There'd be a few prophecies that hadn't quite been fulfilled. Calvin understood this much. He said, To satisfy our ransom, it was necessary to select a mode of death in which he might deliver us, both giving up himself to condemnation and undertaking our expiation, or in other words, the turning of God's wrath. He had, had he been cut off by assassins, or had he been slain in some kind of you know, seditious tumult, some kind of political uh, riot, there could have been no kind of satisfaction in such a death. But when he is placed as a criminal at the bar where witnesses are brought to give evidence against him and, and the mouth of the judge condemns him to die, we see him sustaining the character of an offender and an evildoer. You see, if Jesus had been thrown off some cliff, he wouldn't have died the death that we deserved. So we deserve to be brought before the highest and most just court in the land and have every one of our sins heralded in front of the crowd. And to die as a sinner, to die as a criminal. And that is the death that Jesus died. Why did Jesus die that way? Because it was the death that we deserved. He had to die in a way that mirrored the death deserved by the people that he came to save. He had to die bearing, uh, he had to die being treated in the way that we deserve to be treated at our death. He chose this death. Why Why did Christ choose such a humiliating death? Some point to the the humiliating nature of the way that Jesus died, and they say, You mean this Jewish carpenter was killed, and that's the guy that you follow? That doesn't seem like a glorious king, and they forget what happened three days later. This completely misses the point. If a Savior is going to come and die for the sin of the people, it would make sense that his death would be just as humiliating as the death deserved by the sinful people for which he came. Some say that perhaps the humiliating way that he died proves that he is not who he says he is. It's exactly the opposite. It proves who he says he is. 
For that we would not be surprised by the humiliating nature of Christ's death when we truly grasp who he is, that he is God, that he is holy. We come to the crucifixion and we think, man, how badly they treated him, how, how humiliating that must have been. But we forget that if he is who he says he is and he is God of very God, then his simple coming to this earth was humiliating. Coming to live among us? No, the cross is not the first time that this man, Jesus, has been humiliated. It's not the first moment. In a word, his life on earth was a story of one grand humiliation. Leaving the throne to walk among the reprobate is humiliation for a truly holy God. And we believe he is, don't we? The point is that he chose this humiliation for you. To make much of himself through bringing sinners like us back. Reclaiming us. Donald McLeod wrote, Every moment in that journey from Bethlehem to Calvary was chosen. Every moment on the cross from the third to the ninth hour was chosen. Every day of the Lord's life, he reenacted the kenosis, which just means emptying of himself, renewing the decision which had made him nothing and choosing to move further and further into the shame and pain that it involved. He loved his own. And when it eventually became clear what that love would cost. He went forward, trembling, to be what his people's sin deserved. In short, he died in total control. He chose his death. He chose to die like we deserved to die. Do you see the love of God manifested in this great, awesome reality? I hope that you do. And I would say to you that perhaps you were sitting here in this sanctuary today and you have no idea why you are here. I would suggest to you that it is this. That God in his sovereign holiness wanted you to be here, to hear this. That there is a perfect savior that will bear the sin that you cannot bear so that you can be made right with a good and holy God. It has been said that the concern of my parents' generation and of my grandparents' generation was, is there life after death? It has also been said that the concern of my generation is, is there life before death? Is there life right now? Well, I am here to tell you that this story reveals to us that there is a God in heaven who wants you to have life and have it to the full right now in union with the one true God. I pray that you would respond to him. I pray that you would respond to him. He chose this humiliating death for you, and I can't help but think of the words to the song, Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know. With all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. I hope that you would find that to be true of you today. We see here something very instructive in verses 47 and 48, the response of the people to these things. They saw the darkness, some of them perhaps shouting Hosanna days before, crucify him hours before, and now watch how they leave. Watch how they leave. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly 
this man was innocent. Another gospel uh, account says that uh, this centurion also said, surely this was the Son of God. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. Now, beating, beating your breast back then was a, a this sign of, I have great emotion in my heart. I'm, I'm, my, my heart is torn up. I'm, I'm, I feel repentant. I feel angst. Something has gone wrong here. And we don't know exactly the content of the heart of every person there, but we do know that their attitudes had drastically changed when they saw what had unfolded there. When the sinless Savior, the spotless Lamb, took on the sin of the world, the attitude of the city had turned. And and now those who thought that they had gathered on Golgotha to watch justice being carried out, they left knowing that perhaps they had made a grave miscalculation. No longer are they marching up the hill with all this confidence saying, crucify him. They are walking away silently. Sorry for what has happened. The centurion, of course, was there as well. This man, the the centurion, the word there, centurion, uh, means that he was a soldier in charge of a hundred men. The century, like a century, it's a hundred years, and Centurion was there. Um, not, not just some garden variety soldier. Here we are confronted, though, with a frightening possibility. And I don't want you to miss this. Because we are sinners, having every faculty in our bodies, our minds, our hearts tainted by the effects of our, wit- of, our, of our wickedness, we must see that it is possible to get Christ wrong. There are some here today who perhaps don't believe that Christ was God. Uh, you're here, you're hearing this message. You don't believe that he is who he says he is. It's possible to get Christ wrong. Perhaps you've been in the church pews for years, decades, and you've been trusting in your own ability, in your own goodness, which is a joke, to save you. It is possible to get Christ wrong. Do you hear your voice among the crowd? And I would caution you, if you believe that if you were there, you would not have been swept away by the current of popular opinion. You would not have been tempted to say, crucify him, to go with the Pharisees on this one. I'm going to stick with the guys that know what they're talking about. If you think to yourself, no, 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 I would never, I would never do something like that. That is not a heart of humility. A heart of humility says, you know, I wouldn't put it past me. I know me. I wouldn't put it past me. To get Jesus wrong. You know why in another gospel account, in John actually, John chapter 19, the Jews petitioned the Romans who were crucifying Jesus. They petitioned them to go around and break the legs 
of those who were being crucified. And we know one reason why this is. Why did they want to break the legs of those who were being crucified to speed up the process of death? But why did they want to speed up the death process so that there would not be a dead body hanging on the Sabbath? In their zeal to follow the letter of the law, they killed the one who came to fulfill the law. In their zeal to do all the religious rituals and to do everything just right. In their zeal to make themselves look holy. They killed the Son of God. And I would suggest that if it is possible for them, knowing so much of what they did of the Old Testament, to get Jesus wrong, perhaps it is possible today as well. The question, though, remains. Will you leave today with your heart hardened? Or will you leave today beating your breast? in a spirit of repentance. I don't want to cause anyone to doubt what Jesus has already accomplished in your life, but I would be remiss if I did not draw attention to the possibility that you may not know him. The stakes are far too high. I said earlier that the darkness which shrouded the events of Jesus' crucifixion pointed to a sobering reality, and that reality was that the only perfect man that ever walked the earth was considered as if he had done all of the sins that we have done. There's another side to that coin, is that if you will respond to Jesus in faith, not only will he be considered as taking on your sin, as have actually have done your sin, but you can be considered by God as actually to have lived the perfect life that Jesus did. It's a glorious exchange. We've seen today that it was not glorious for Jesus there on the cross, but the effects can be glorious in your life. He wants to take your sin on himself and give you his righteousness. Why? Because he knows that every sin, every sin that you have ever committed or ever will, or ever will commit, every sin will be judged. Every sin will be paid for. The only question is by whom? Will your sin be born on the back of the one spotless lamb who can deal with it? Or will it be born on your own back in an eternity separated from him in a real place called hell? That's the only question. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. It's glorious truth. Is I'll finish with this. 2 Corinthians, perhaps a more concentrated explanation here. It begins by saying, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Verse 21 says this. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. My charge to you today, my encouragement to you today is exactly what Paul said in the verse before that. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Do you see him sitting there, sitting because the work is finished? sitting at the right hand of God, ready 
today to speak your name to God the Father. If only you will turn, confess your sin, and trust him as your only hope. He will do that for you. He will. In a moment, I'm going to pray. Ethan is going to come and play some music as we think on the word of God. And as you have an opportunity in a moment to respond. I've said before that any time that we approach God's word, we are changed. You are either hardened a little more, stiffen up a little more, or you respond to him saying, God, I need this. Don't harden your heart. Do not harden your heart. If you have never trusted Christ, if you've never begun a relationship with him, today is the day of salvation. Pray with me. Lord, you are good. And we see that clearly when it's contrasted against the black drape of our sin. We need you because you are the only one who is good. We have no chance because we have no goodness in ourselves. We have no chance to come to you. We have no chance to come to God and to enjoy eternity with him, to enjoy life to the full right now. Save for the man, Jesus Christ, because his work is finished on the cross, because he was the perfect mediator between us and God the Father, fully God and fully man, dying a humiliating death for us. And I pray that those who perhaps know that they must respond today would confess you before men so that you, Jesus, would confess them before the Father. I ask these things, God, begging. In the name of your Son, Jesus, for whom we gather. Amen. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.